welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We are now down to number 16 on the list. Which means that in this episode we'll be discussing Franz Voxman's score to the 1950 tragicomic inside Hollywood story Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard was written by Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, and D.M. Marshman Jr. It was produced by Charles Brackett for Paramount, and it was directed by Billy Wilder. John, give us a rough sense of Sunset Boulevard. It's a wry, dramatic story about a fading, silent film-era actress and the young screenwriter whom she draws into her orbit. The faded actress is Norma Desmond, and she's memorably played by Gloria Swanson, who was herself a major star of the silent era. The young writer is Joe Gillis, and he's played by William Holden. Norma's mysterious butler, Max, is played by the great silent era director, Eric von Stroheim. And the movie also stars Nancy Olsen as the young, bright-eyed, aspiring writer, Betty Schaefer, as well as a handful of cameos by Hollywood figures playing themselves, in particular Cecil B. DeMille, who has a whole scene as Cecil B. DeMille. The story is narrated from beyond the grave by William Holden's character, who tells the story of his tragic downfall at the hands of this egomaniacally obsessed actress who can't let go of her former glory. He starts out by just helping her with the screenplay, but she gradually draws him deeper and deeper into her control and her madness to his eventual doom. And the whole thing winds up being a sort of cynical self-portrait of Hollywood. Good enough? Good enough. Handy, how can you tell when your uh, film music discussion podcast has made it? A A pun? No, it's not a pun. How can you tell when you're Okay, that's not a joke just... either. You don't have to give an answer. I can't tell is the answer. Well, that's because you're not looking, but it's when people write indignant screeds on film score online forums about things that you say. Did this happen? I read a thing where somebody took offense to uh, what we said about how the West was won. Okay. And this was somebody who obviously liked that a great deal and seemed to imply that he had seen it in the theater when it was released. But one of the criticisms that he leveled was that we were sitting in our 2017 armchairs and judging this thing from a modern perspective when it was, in fact, our obligation to put ourselves in the mindset of what it would have been like to come to this piece of work fresh and new as though it was the time that it was made. Mm Mm-hmm. I, what do you think about that? Because I think I disagree with it. First of all, I'm not in an armchair. But second of all, I'm in 2017 for sure. Yeah. So one can choose one's point of view. I feel like we're choosing a half and half point of view. I'm trying to anyway. Yeah, well, I brought it up because I don't think I agree with that idea. I think that certainly we can appreciate the context in which these pieces of art were created and what the expectations at the time were, and we talk about that, you know, a fair amount, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't bring to bear all of the uh, knowledge and experience that has been gained since this time. This is an issue that comes up with any top 10, top 100 type list, because there's the things as they are now, and then there's the memory of the phenomenon that something was 50 years ago or 100 years ago, which, you know, they're at odds. 
there's no simple answer to it. So I disagree if anyone says you're doing it the wrong way, but uh, I sympathize with the idea that there's there's many different ways to do it, and we're just stumbling along as seems instinctive to us. All right. Well, the reason that I brought up this point of discussion about evaluating art both from within and without the chronological context in which it was produced is I feel like to talk about the score to Sunset Boulevard, we're going to have to talk about what things sounded like in 1950. And whether they still sound that way. Well, the answer is no, they don't still sound that way. Well, they definitely don't sound that way. But what is it like to listen to them, to how they sounded differently? Well, yeah, definitely the historical imagination, can you get in the mindset of the audience thing, is relevant here. But I also think this is a special case movie in that it is self-aware and self-referential in a lot of ways that maybe take it a little bit out of its historical moment. That's fair, yeah. All right, listen, let's cut to the chase here. You know, let's take a page from this movie and start with the ending and then flash back to the beginning and work up to it. Did you like this score, Andy? Yes, very much. Did you? I think I liked it a little bit less than very much. But let me say, for sure, it's a great movie. I love the movie. Uh, So I ask you now, how can you love this movie without loving the score? Seems to me the score has a lot to do with how the movie feels and plays and lands. So go, tell me why you liked it less than very much. I mean, I feel sacrilegious and I like I'm I don't really have a leg to stand on in criticizing this because Yeah, you know who's not gonna like what you're about to say. Is that guy. How the West was one guy, yeah. Look, I think it's very good and, and I wanna make I'm gonna say it, you know, every so often during this recording that I really love this movie. Like my heart is in the right place here. I'm not trying to dismiss something that's old because it's not modern. But I feel like there were a lot of techniques in this score that didn't enhance the drama for me, that were a little aimless and meandery in how it was playing things and felt very old-fashioned to me in a way that I just didn't didn't connect with. But it's a great movie and also good music. (laughs) Well, I want to hear more about your complaint. I will lay out my thesis, which is that I think that this is a fantastic score that is kind of the beautiful, shining example of the old style, the old-fashioned European scoring style. Uh But I don't think that the ends that it is put to here are themselves old-fashioned. I think it's sort of just like the movie. There's this wonderful, gothic self-awareness in the use of the style. So we're probably going to end up talking about the same techniques and elements and moments, but for me there was a purpose to them. Okay, well, I'm definitely open to you talking me into liking it more. I certainly didn't dislike it. I just, I wasn't on the wavelength with it for whatever reason. Yeah, so like I asked a minute ago, I'm curious how you can love the movie without being on the wavelength of the score because the subtle combination of attitudes in this movie that it's satirical and tragic and comic. And I felt like without this particular musical approach, this story and these scenes and these performances, all of which are great. Nonetheless, I'm not sure I would know to have related to them the way that I do that makes this movie so uniquely satisfying. All right. So let's try to be more a little more specific now. Let's talk about this old school style a little bit so that we can give some examples of what we're talking about. Yeah. So let's talk about, actually, we have to say the guy's name. (laughs) We ended the last one with a joke that it would be a cliffhanger, and then I listened online to Forvo, and someone said, Franz Waxman, and I thought, great, you say it like an American. But my sense now is that it is not nearly so clear-cut as that. The guy was born in 
I was going to say Germany, but it's actually Prussia, which is now part of Poland, but German-speaking territory, with the name Voxmann, spelled W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N-N. Voxmann. No question that that's how that would be pronounced. Franz Voxmann. And then, after getting beaten up by Nazis, he came to America and changed the spelling of his name. W-A-X-M-A-N. Did he change the pronunciation with the spelling is the question. Scintillating. (laughs) If you listen to the Oscars when he won for this movie, Gene Kelly calls him up on stage as Franz Voxman. The winner is Franz Voxman. Then as he's walking up, the announcer for the show says more about Franz Voxman, although he maybe says Voxman, it's hard to hear. Franz Voxman is highly regarded as a conductor as well as a composer. He has been nominated for this award seven times previously and was just about due. For those things, they usually look into how the person wants their name pronounced. I'm deeply grateful for this honor. And I want to thank especially Mr. Brackett and Mr. Wilder for inspiring me with their production of Sunset Boulevard. Thank you. However, if you look at the DVD bonus features where the guy's son, John Waxman refers to their family name as Waxman. My father, Franz Waxman, was a genuine wunderkind. A little kid, five years old, crawls up on the piano and starts playing by himself. I suspect that that is a generational thing or a thing that Franz, his father, didn't stick to too religiously. I am going to pronounce it Voxman. I get the impression from the Oscar ceremony that in 1950, he was being called Voxman by his peers. What do you think, John? That sounds fine. Okay, great. I'm glad you're down with that. Yeah, I'm down with it. And I think that, boy, we there are a lot of relieved listeners that we finally resolved this. I know. I feel bad for leading them on last time. They've been probably going around for the last couple of weeks saying Waxman to their friends. <laughs> Whenever he's come up in conversation. Um... What was the question? Oh, yeah, the old-fashioned style. So he was one of a bunch of European-trained composers who ended up in Hollywood. You have Eric Wolfgang Korngold, Max Steiner, Franz Waxman, Miklos Roja that we talked about. There was just this sort of European contingent there. Filmmakers as well, directors. There were German. Including Billy Wilder. Including Billy Wilder, uh, the director of this movie. Also Eric von Stroheim, who appears as an actor in this movie but was, in fact, a director of early silent films. So the old style that we're talking about, these guys had all trained in the music schools of Europe and the European tradition, the tradition of, you know, Wagner and Strauss and Mahler, and this elaborate, high-romantic classical technique... They brought this to Hollywood, and this is what they call the golden age of film scores, wrote in this uh, very classically based, intricate, musically sophisticated language. Very musically rigorous and lush and, uh, yeah, romantic orchestra. Big romantic orchestra. Based essentially in the sounds of the German classical tradition. And, you know, to a lot of Americans who are not classical fans, when they hear those sounds, they think, oh, this sounds like an old movie. You know, this piece that we've been listening to here, this is not a movie from the 30s or 40s. This is a concert piece by Richard Strauss from 1888. But obviously all these sounds are familiar to Americans from where they ended up in Hollywood. (laughs) 
So this, which is written in a very similar style to the Strauss, is actually from a Voxman film score. It's from Prince Valiant. It's kind of a cool thing about movie music. You know, they say, this person trained with that person, he trained with that person, and he knew Beethoven, and, you know, people like these lines of descent. And, like, movie music is a pretty legitimate American direct line of descent from the world of Wagner and Liszt and, you know, European classical music. And I think anyone, even people who are, you know, just listening to this because they know us and don't really care about film music, uh, people who... <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening. The, uh, I think people who don't have any particular relationship to classical music or film scores consciously, they still have an intuitive sense of like, yeah, that's that old-fashioned sound. And I'm saying the word European over and over. I kind of think that that also is this intuition we have, that there's kind of an old craftsmanship that characterizes the 30s and 40s in American cinema. It's just an instinctive connection. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about watching this movie is it, this movie came out in 1950, and I was thinking about the fact that the art form of writing music for movies, but also just for making movies, was, you know, still a pretty new art, especially when you consider when, you know, talkies came to the fore in 1927. They were making movies that had synchronized soundtracks for just 20 years or so when they made this movie. And yeah, it's a, it's a sort of a funny thing about film music is that right out of the gate, it kind of starts out with this very grand formal style. Then, you know, that formality kind of dissipated and turned in different directions. But, you know, this movie forces you to think about the film industry. It's a, a weird thing. It feels very established in this film, but it's sort of a new thing. It's within everybody's lifetimes that it's even been a thing. Part of what's wacky about this movie is that she's from this bygone time. She's only 50. She's only thinking back to when she was 30. It's not like some yeah. ancient multi-generational distance that they're looking back. Yeah, it's not Gloria Stewart at the beginning of Titanic or something. Right, exactly. No. A movie we do not need to reference. You can if you want to talk about Titanic. I... <laughs> you can talk about West Side Story. You can. <laughs> okay, so yes, we've been trying to articulate this style, this Germanic orchestral style, very intricately wrought fine craftsmanship. Uh, I want to talk about how the degree of harmonic nuance and the amount of harmonic movement that there is in this style is a lot greater than later movie music styles. Pick one of the scenes, for example, where Joe is working on Norma's screenplay, sitting there, and there's voiceover talking about what that experience was like. Each of these thoughts corresponds to a new chord. Yes, I wanted the job. I wanted the dough, and I wanted to get out of there as quickly as I could. I thought if I really got going, I could finish it up in a couple of weeks. But it wasn't so simple getting some coherence into those wild hallucinations of hers. And what made it even tougher was that she was around all the time, hovering over me, afraid I'd do injury to that precious brainchild of hers. We're just seeing him at a desk, and there's a lot of harmonic movement just to get us through this snippet of voiceover. Yeah, there's a lot of movement. That's definitely something that I was marking as well. The music is twisting this way and that, and it's very fluid. And that's true for a lot of the dialogue scenes, especially the climactic, important dialogue scenes towards the end of the movie. There's this music that's underplaying all of them that 
yeah, it feels like it's moving all over the place. And I think that was something that wasn't as effective for me. The extreme motion, I think, undermined its ability to attach to anything. It didn't feel attached to the moments going by because it was, it was just too twisty-turny and uh, meandering. I think I used that word before, too. Well, yeah, so this is kind of the crux of it, because to me that twisty-turny constant movement yeah. is one of the characteristics of the old style. That's a technique that comes from opera in which there is no camera movement and there are no close-ups and because everything is sung there's sort of by necessity a slower pace to the unspooling of the dramatic moments. And so in a lot of operas it's compensated for by harmonic movement that keeps the sense of activity up. And if you're talking about that last scene where Joe finally says, I'm leaving, Norma, you know, you're nuts and I'm not going to be part of this anymore. In that scene, I feel like it is scored like opera. Yeah, well, let's kind of do a quick play-by-play example of where the music is twisting and turning and how it relates to what's happening. You can have anything you want. What is it you want? There's some low winds with tremolo strings above. Norma, you'd be throwing it away. I don't qualify for the job. Not anymore. You can't go! Max! Max! I can't face life without you! The strings go into a faster rhythm. They're kind of wandering around. Yeah, but it's this feeling of yearning and angst and... Oh, now she goes to get the gun. This is a good moment. You think I made that up about the gun, don't you? And there's a timpani. Boom, boom. It's a heartbeat. It's tense. Oh, no, she's getting a gun. Okay, but why does it stop? Now she's gotten the gun and she's coming back into the room and the music has let go of that moment in a weird spot. Yeah, all right, so why did the timpani stop prematurely, it seemed to me? To me, that's like a sign of this supple, ever-changing sensitivity to what's happening dramatically that really works for me. The timpani comes in because, you know, you feel the gears of the tragedy turning here. That gun that she mentioned earlier, she's going to get it. Chekhov's gun is coming into the frame. Yeah, sure. And you know I'm not afraid to die. That's between you and yourself. You think I made that up about the gun, don't you? All right. And then, now she has things to say. Now I suppose you don't think I have the courage. Watching this scene, the tragedy of it comes in your feeling of like, oh, maybe can they just say things to each other that that work this out? If the drum beat was like, it's inevitable, it's inevitable, boom, boom, everything from this point on is just a march to the death, then it's a foregone conclusion what's happening. I'm rooting for you guys to not end this scene in a tragic way and it, that it gets a little quieter there and that it starts being squirmy rather than funereal seems correct to me. Well, I mean, I guess there's room for you to make all of these associations and justifications because it's, yes, yeah, squirming everywhere. And so there's a little move over here. There's a projection into this thought. There's a gesture towards this emotion. There's a gesture over here, over there. To me, it just it feels a little manic. It feels a little unfocused. Well, she is a little manic. 
Okay, and if that's the way you want to interpret it, that's totally fair too. And here, let me just pause now to say that I really love this movie, and I like and respect the score, okay? <laughs> Everybody listening at home, don't worry, I'm not setting out to be a curmudgeon about this. I'm glad you're sticking to your sense that it wasn't working for you. Have you noticed that this music that we are taking a microscope to here is actually a kind of restatement of material from the opening titles? Okay. That stuff that's going on under the scene slower. Norma, you'd be throwing it away. I don't qualify for the job. Not anymore. We can't go. Max, Max! I can't face life without you. And you know I'm not afraid to die. That's between you and yourself. You think I made that up about the gun, don't you? All right. I think part of the idea that the tragedy is finally coming full circle is that you're hearing the thing you heard at the beginning. We're nearing the end. You, you kind of feel it. At least it worked that way for me. Okay. Uh, so here Max comes into the room. He says, Madame is the greatest star of them all. I will take Mr. Gillis's bags to the car. And why does he get that really heavy emphasis? He turns on his heel and walks out of frame carrying Joe's bags. Why is that a moment that really oh, is seized upon like that? Now grow up. There's nothing tragic about being 50. Not unless you try to be 25. And now we've jumped to a completely different texture. She's staring off into space. I think that that boom there is because this movie is going to end with her in like a true psychosis where she believes things are going on that aren't going on. And this sequence is where she's going to cross a line. And I think that that timpani beat when he turns to go, and it's like by turning to go, her pleading with Joe to stay has officially failed. Like... The bags are leaving the room. Okay. You heard him? I'm a star. I feel like that boom is kind of the snap, and then this trill is madness, right? Sure. The greatest star of them all. I mean, she gets the craziest look in her eyes that anyone has ever had in a movie. <laughs> you know, she says at, some, at one point in the movie, why do I need to talk? I can say whatever I want to with my eyes. And boy, she is right. Yeah, this is where she's like, no one walks out in a star. That's what makes yeah. a star. She, you know. <laughs> no one ever leaves a star. That's what makes one a star. She's nuts. And there's this trill, which is... <laughs> Did it not work for you that that's what it sounds like when she's nuts? No, that works for me. So, yeah, I feel like that's the moment when it's like... Boom, now she transitions to that. Boom, now she's nuts. Okay, I guess... Man, I don't know, because it's... uh, Yeah, of course it's good. But, you know, watching it the first time, second time, even third time I, I watched this scene, Max just saying, okay, now I will take your bags. He walks out of the frame, and then it's vroom, and it just felt a little odd to me. It felt like it was just moving amoeba-like in any direction it wanted to. And yeah, sure, now that you say, well, that's the moment that she snaps, the bags leaving the room signifies that she's lost her battle to keep him from leaving. Uh, okay, that makes sense, but it didn't... 
I think it was just moving too amorphously in every direction for me to be able to make these kinds of attachments to it. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of these explanations that you're coming up with what they meant to you. Um, I guess my point is... uh, It didn't land. It didn't connect for you. It didn't connect. It didn't feel like it was gelling, like it was... And I want to be clear that I'm not making these explanations like, this is the rational reason why I liked it. These are after the fact. It did gel for me. It just felt right. Okay. A lot of it did gel for me. You know, uh, just back to the operatic idea. I I really like this movie and I like this score. (laughs) You've been clear about that. I don't think that's unclear. I'm worried about this How the West Was One guy now. That's why I don't read this stuff. No, listen, I can take it. He's allowed. Yeah, he's welcome. At least he's engaged. Why he didn't write on Twitter like we told him to and yell at us there. (laughs) I mean, this is the big picture story I wanted to talk about. For this kind of score to work for you, You have to be open to that world of expression, that operatic, in the most literal sense, the world of emotional extremes that comes to us from opera. You have to have some room for it to be serious to you. Because it's a very strange movie. If you did this movie without this heavy Straussian score, it would seem like uh, since Sunset Boulevard, there's been a lot of these wry movies about Hollywood. There's a wink and a smirk that we're all kind of used to and we kind of get the flavor of this post-noir L.A. satire thing. I mean, there's just tons of it now. I don't know that there were any movies of that flavor prior to this, and this isn't exactly of that flavor. No, I think it was actually received a little scandalously among the Hollywood set. It was sort of a little bit too uncomfortably behind the scenes of, you know, how the sausage was made for some people in Hollywood. Didn't Louis B. Mayer say to Billy Wilder, you've bitten the hand that feeds you and you should be run out of town? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. You know, how dare you uh, show the dirty laundry? And it's absolutely influential. And so many things about this movie are influential. That opening shot, or, you know, close to the opening of William Holden floating dead in the pool as the police are peering down at him, echoes everywhere in culture. I feel like you see that shot. This time when I was watching and I thought, oh, yeah, sure, that's what's being referenced in the opening sequence of Bojack Horseman, you know, when he's floating in the pool and people are peering down at him. And then, you know, just the photography is so beautiful. It's an influential movie every which way. Yeah, so the specific way I'm talking about is that there would be no The Player and, you know, Hail Caesar or uh, this whole, like, on-the-lot, knowing, smirking kind of movie. It's just a type of movie that we're used to now. But what the modern incarnations of that don't have, that this movie has, is this foundation in this sincerely tragic sound. Which can be grotesque, but it's never in quotes. It's offered in a high, dramatic, operatic spirit, and it is meant to be taken that way, and that's what gives this movie its, for me, unique satisfaction that, for all that it is sardonic, its emotional beats are serious. I think that if you're resistant to the old-school emotional approach, you might feel like there's this old-fashioned weight holding this movie back. But to me, it's an essential part hmm. of what is satisfying about the movie is that it is, it's not purely satire. It's got a real mournful quality to it. It's, it doesn't hate all its characters. It is genuinely sorry for all of them. Okay. I mean... Uh... That's at least how it reads to me. That's how it feels to me, and that's what I enjoy about the movie. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, I really enjoy this movie, too. I, I really like this oh, movie. Oh, have you mentioned that? I don't know if we... Yeah. Okay, so let me let me see if I can come up with a different avenue of articulation for what I didn't all the way love about this score. Mm-hmm. I was confused by what the score chose to specifically highlight and what it didn't. What motions or actions it wanted to catch the audience's attention with. It seemed like there were some things that it let just sort of pass by that I really wanted it to acknowledge. And then it seemed to go out of its way to acknowledge other things that I didn't understand why that was being pointed out to me. Like what? Well, I mean, right off the top, that iconic shot peering up from the bottom of the pool to the floating dead body. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that there's not any kind of uh, sting or, you know, it doesn't really get acknowledged such a dramatic angle, such a unusual shot, you know, so portentous and evocative of, you know, encapsulates the whole drama that we're about to see. And the music just kind of uh, plays easily through it. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. The poor dope. He always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got himself a pool. You know, it's sort of playing around with the music that's about to coalesce into Joe's theme Mm -hmm. when he flashes back to his apartment. Let's go back about six months and find the day when it all started. I was living in an apartment house above Franklin and Ivar. Things were tough at the moment. Let me just, uh, a quick aside here. Boy, was it exciting to see this movie living in Hollywood near where a lot of this stuff takes place. I'm just down the street from Paramount Studios. And I don't know, that made me really feel really cool because I was like, oh yeah, Franklin and Ivar, I was there the other day. Anyway, I'm, I'm saying that uh, I felt like the music for this iconic, influential, dramatic shot was just a little bit treading water, if you'll permit me. Wah, wah. But is that you saying that it felt wrong or just that when you went to think about it later, you thought, oh, he could have done something there? Because that whole sequence feels good to me. Okay. I love the way this movie starts with action, action, action music while you are looking at just the credits. It's trucking down the street and you're just looking at the asphalt going by and you see the credits and you hear action and you don't see it. It's like chase music, but there's no chase. And then when you do see the action and they go to the pool, the music really pulls back and it's just sort of sickly, you know, I'm dead now music. You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion with two shots in his back and one in his stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. I liked that it didn't start with a doubling of what was on screen. I mean, this movie is just so smart. I have such a sense of the script and the direction and everything being intelligent. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And for me, the music surprising you when it syncs up and is really on the nose and when it chooses not to be and sort of is oblique, to me really fit with that, the sense that, you know, it's not just a reflexive score. It's a score that knows what's going on. So... With this whole movie and with this whole score, I kind of get to the point where I'm like, these people know what they're doing. So then all the choices they make, if they're weird choices, they're not the normal choice. I just enjoy it because I feel like I'm in good hands. I'm in the hands of people who uh, have something to offer. So yeah, you're right. There is no sting. They just show you this visual and the there is like string harmonics playing kind of like... Yeah, it's kind of piecing together Joe's theme. 
It's like the last echoing, decomposing bits of Joe's theme. And then there's the flashback and you hear it all put together again. The whole movie is about decay, right? It's about things going to rot and falling apart and ending ignominiously. And uh, yeah, for the first piece of music in the movie to kind of be... Uh, completely unsatisfying, gross, there's nothing heroic about this ending kind of music. Felt good to me. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's a very good point. Maybe I was looking too hard for it to, as you say, to mirror what was happening, to double what we were already looking at. Yeah, of course, giving you other things to think about than what you're seeing, filling in a different part of the picture is a totally valid and worthwhile, effective thing to do with the music. I'm not sure why I was missing the doubling in a bunch of places, but I was. Mm -hmm. And then I was sort of confused why the music felt the need to climb the stairs with Joe. Why the music felt the need to drop into the golf hole with the golf ball. <laughs> he was hard at work in Bel Air, making with the golf sticks. Why the music felt the need to blink when the lights get turned off. <laughs> I absolutely did have the thought, even on my first viewing, why do I need help with these little actions? Why are you putting emphasis on this and not on, you know, the dead body floating in the pool? Well, let's talk about it. To me, it was something kind of delicious about this movie that it had these weird, unpredictable moments of what they call Mickey Mouse, which is like a derogatory term in the business. You know, like, don't Mickey Mouse that. I mean, the term comes from in the old Silly Symphony cartoons where everything, you know, the skeleton falls down and you hear the xylophone go along. Because that's what it sounds like when a skeleton falls down. Everything has some musical equivalent. Yeah, it's sort of music as sound effects. Right. So when things sync up perfectly and kind of illustrate specific actions, they call that Mickey Mousing. The idea of calling it Mickey Mousing, I think, is supposed to be about this demarcation between an absurd, heightened, cartoonish way of things being balletic. Everything is a kind of a dance. And then a real dramatic approach to things where... You know, the moment that the golf ball falls in the hole is not significant to this movie. So don't fall for the mere kinetic significance of it and score it. But Voxman scores all kinds of little things. Uh, you just named a whole bunch of them. Yeah, and I kind of savored each one. It's a little frisson of something a little... Well, I do like a frisson. Yeah, quirky or naughty or it's like a wink every time it happens. I mean, I think it had the effect on me of you know, why it's this sort of derogatory term that it feels a little cartoonish, it feels a little silly or over-obvious. It's an indication that the composer is emphasizing a thing, calling extra attention to these small actions. It took me a little bit out of the story to have these little movements glossed like that. The biggest offender for me was... So, you know, the first time that Joe goes into Norma's mansion, he walks up the stairs, we hear the music walking up the stairs with him. (laughs) 
I was sort of on board with that because sort of playing the tension of where is he going and you're confused as to where he is and, and what he's doing there. And I felt like that was assimilated into the texture of the music pretty well there. But then at the end of the movie, after he's driven Betty out, then he walks back up the stairs again. And again, the music is, you know, plink, plink, plunk, plunk, walking up the stairs. I mean, obviously, I think it was meant to have a resonance with that earlier stair walking shot, but I really felt like I don't need help with him walking up the stairs here. I want to be thinking about the emotion. You know, he's just turned away the girl that he actually likes and is trudging back up to this crazy person. And meanwhile, the crazy person is watching him. You know, there's a lot of tense emotion here. Why isn't the music talking about that? Why is the music stopping to say, by the way, he's walking up the stairs? That felt weird to me. And it instinctively felt weird to you, you're saying? Yeah, it did. Yeah, because to me... It was so clear that what it was doing was not helping me with him walking up the stairs. I think the point of it is not to assist the action, but in fact to evoke a state of mind that is... uh, I mean, have you ever had an experience where you're like so worked up or so anxious or so, I don't know, in a bad state of mind and you become just hyper aware of things you know like the old when someone has a hangover in a movie and they make the sounds really loud Hmm. i think the meaning of the mickey mouse at that point is that he is walking through this yeah like grotesque cartoon that is the world he's stuck in you know i think we are supposed to feel it as this unpleasant absurdity that is clinging to his actions like you're saying where's the real dramatic meaning Yeah, exactly. That's how Joe feels. Why is my life about walking up stairs to this woman? Yeah, this is all, this all sounds good. This all sounds valid. I like this movie a lot and I I like the music. I like the music. I'm nitpicking at these things that didn't... I don't think you're nitpicking. I think you're expressing a non-sympathetic response that you intuitively had. I just wanted to call out my favorite Mickey Mouse in this movie, which is when it cuts back to Betty and Joe working on their script that they do at night. It's the scene where she realizes that she's fallen for Joe and doesn't really want to get married to her fiancé anymore. It cuts back to them, and she is staring at him instead of working. Oh, I really like that moment, too. And there's this sustained chord of her stare. Yeah, it gets stuck. Yeah, she's stuck in her brain, and so the cord is stuck. What's next? And then that moment of coming to gets a little pizzicato. Betty, wake up. Why are you staring at me like that? Oh, what? I'm sorry. That moment landed for me, too. I like that. Okay, so I've been picking out these moments where the music is specifically highlighting actions on the screen, and I'm saying it's giving this unnecessary emphasis and... And then you're sort of talking me into why that makes sense dramatically and why it lands for you emotionally. Mm -hmm. Let me go to the other side of the coin here. Mm -hmm. My prime example here, my exhibit A for where I felt like the music did not acknowledge something that it needed to. And that is, it's a great scene. And it's a great moment in this movie that I really like. When Norma Desmond goes back to Paramount Studios. Norma Desmond is coming in to see you, Mr. DeMille. 
And she is greeted by Cecil B. DeMille playing himself very well, I thought. He gives a good performance as himself. Mm-hmm, he does. It must be about that awful script of hers. What can I tell her? What can I say? Anyway, she's on set with Cecil B. DeMille, and he goes off to deal with his rehearsal for the movie, and he says, Now, why don't you just sit up here in my chair and make yourself comfortable? Hmm? She sits down in the classic director's chair that says C.B. DeMille across the back of it, and would that be a grip? The guy uh, operating the spotlight up in the catwalks of the shooting stage recognizes her. Hey, Miss Desmond! And he shines this big arc light at her, and she's suddenly suffused in light. Again, the photography in this movie is tremendous. And then when she's lit up by this spotlight, let's get a good look at you. Various people around the set see her and recognize her, and they say, "Oh, Norma Desmond!" You know, extras who are in costume and security people—they throng around her to see the star of yesteryear. Look, there's Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond. Why, I thought she was dead. How oh, nice to see you. Welcome home, Mr. The light shining on her is such a lovely visual metaphor for the fame, the adulation of the public that, you know, obviously she was missing and then she gets this little taste of it again. It's literal and metaphorical at the same time because, yes, there's literally a light shining on her, but, you know, it's sort of echoing into these metaphoric meanings as well. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the heart of the movie, that moment. It's really like... Exactly. It's the heart of the movie. And then what's the heart of the heart of the movie is the moment when DeMille comes back and he says, okay, let's get back to work, put that light back where it belongs, and then the light goes away. And as soon as the light goes away, all of this throng of onlookers fussing over her, they dissolve away. You know, her fame goes away, her adulation goes away. When the light of the filmmaking is not shining on her... Her attention goes away, and it's a beautiful moment. And what is the score doing there? Treading water. Targa, turn that light back where it belongs. Man, I wanted the score to acknowledge this important change. The crux of this character of Norma Desmond is encapsulated in that one moment that the light is on her, and then as soon as it's off, everybody leaves her. That's the movie in a nutshell, and I feel like it was such a sharp dividing line visually. It was such a moment visually, and there's no moment for it in the score. The score doesn't move over any divide. The instrumentation doesn't change. It doesn't go from one feeling to a different one. It just treads water through it. That is my exhibit A as to why is the music not paying attention to this when it has time to pay attention to all this other stuff. I mean, my impulse yet again is to defend like, no, it's exactly the right choice because of how this movie works. You want me to, you want me to go through that? Sure. I think it's exactly the right choice because <laughs> of how this movie works. I mean, I guess my rebuttal to your proposal that that be played as tragic is that that is norma's mindset in norma's mind the fact that she's not a movie star anymore is the grand tragedy again this theme of decay like it doesn't get yanked away in a dramatic way it just dissipates and that's what's so painful that's what she can't handle no but i wanted to hear that decay i also feel like you're pretty much getting what you want there i mean it's not played like a big timpani role and and a brass chord but you hear her theme being played over this 
somber bass note it sort of trails off and it, it's like a yearning string solo kind of thing that is totally what you would hear in an opera for a, a mournful moment of disappointment all right I, I just wanted to hear that transition i feel like as demille walks up we're already in that moment Arga. turn that light back where it belongs and then the light gets turned off and the people walk away, and that moment just continues. I wanted to hear it dissolving in the music there. I guess the music is playing the sort of overall sadness of somebody's adulation fading away, and it's playing that sadness continuously. Again, I feel like, you know, if the music has time to go plink, plunk, plunk, when the golf ball drops into the hole, then why can't it give me this moment, which seems like such a keenly observed and well-orchestrated moment as well? Why can't it put a moment there to mark that motion? Yeah, to me, it just works. It works that the register of the deepest emotions, and I do think that this is the scene with the most sincere and deepest emotional expression in it, that it has the slowest tempo it has the slowest heartbeat to it like the deep emotions are these slow fading ones and whatever the opposite is this kind of absurd materialism that i was talking about earlier yeah that's turns on a dime that feels intuitively right to me it's interesting that you're complaining kind of about how individual moments were treated because my experience of the movie was that it just held me in its hands and worked and worked in this sophisticated way and then I had to go back afterward and kind of marvel at like oh look what he did to me in that moment in that moment but I didn't have any issue with the moments in the experiencing of it hmm. I got just drawn through them by the craft yeah I agree it is curious that I had this reaction to it I completely know that experience with other movies where people will say like why didn't you just love the movie? And I'll be like, well, because, you know, at this moment, why did that thing happen? They're like, why are you even talking about that moment? There wasn't even a moment there. There was just a continuity of things working. And so, yeah, I had that just kind of continuous experience. And for me, any analysis is a kind of like trying to anatomize something that was just working for me. And you uh, you had that like interrupted experience of, well, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Let me bring up a moment that I thought was really powerful and that I really did love in this score. I feel like we should have by now spelled out the two main themes in the movie. There's Norma's theme and there's Joe's theme, and they are sort of having a dialogue the whole way through the movie. They're, you hear them a great amount of the time during the playing of the score. So Norma's theme is this. You know, sometimes it gets played with a tango texture, but, you know, it gets played with every different texture you can imagine. And then Joe's theme, I think, is meant to be sort of a younger, hipper sound, a slightly jazzier sound, because he's a younger, hipper, jazzier guy. To contrast with Norma's very dignified, old-fashioned sounding melody. So Joe has this sort of bouncy tune, and these two themes are sort of having at it the whole score along. I read a thing where Voxman said that he uh, picked that tango for Norma basically off of when she talks about the dance floor in her house. Yeah. That uh, Valentino danced tango on it once. You know, this floor used to be wood, but I had it changed. 
Valentino said there's nothing like tile for a tango. Uh, I think this image of the glamour. Exactly. Of, Classic, old-time elegance and glamour, yeah. And the slight exoticism of how glamour was constructed in the 20s. But Joe's theme, I feel like, yeah, it's jazzy because he's a young guy, but it's also kind of a down-on-his-luck blues. Yeah, sure. It's got the sound of being a, I, I don't have any money, I don't have anything I need kind of classic work blues. Okay. Because there are moments when it's used not for Joe himself. You know, if you sure. were like, why does this correspond to Joe? You'd have a hard time, I think, drawing a direct line. Like, I think it's used when you see Buster Keaton, when they show the people playing bridge, all these sort of past their prime I mean, Buster Keaton is a huge star, but I think it's supposed to be like they're washed up, they're yesterday's news. Yeah. It's slightly pathetic. And you hear Joe's theme, which is the gone to seed, slightly pathetic theme. Spade? Pass. Three now, Trump. Pass. Pass. I like your way of putting that because that actually explains something that I wasn't quite sure what to make of at the very end of the picture. So the iconic ending of the movie is that the police have come to arrest Norma, but she's psychotically deluded herself into believing she's shooting a movie. And she gives this little speech about how happy she is and thanks everybody. And then she mentions all those wonderful people out there in the dark and crazily looks right into the camera as if to directly address us, the viewers. And yeah, we hear Joe's theme through that, and I wasn't sure exactly why. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. You know, I like how you put it. That sort of connected it for me there. You know, we're the down-on-our-luck schlubs out there in the dark that she's sort of bestowing her grace upon in this little imagined moment of hers. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know that there's a clear interpretation of it, which is what makes it such a cool choice. To me, hearing that music, you know, Joe is dead. He's been out of the picture. He's done with his narration. And then here's his sad sack theme kind of cropping up in the background. It's like the ghost rises up to haunt everyone. The eternal failure and self-delusion and selling out and all of the tawdry elements of this, they haunt the whole exercise of Hollywood somehow. That's kind of what it meant to me. All right. Well, anyway, what I wanted to bring up that I really liked was this final use of Norma's theme here at the end. So Norma's theme is everywhere. You know, we first hear it on Winds. Why have you kept me waiting so long? We hear it on Strings. We hear it on Saxophone. up and down, slow and fast, woven through the whole picture. So then at the end, the classic ending when she's walking down the stairs and she's imagining that the newsreel cameras are DeMille's movie cameras, the movie that she thinks she's starring in is, uh, say the word, Andy, it's what? How do you say this word? Well, I say Salome. She in the movie says Salome. Salome, yeah. (laughs) I pricked my ears up at that too. I thought it was Salome. So she believes herself to be in... Salome. 
Yes, yeah, she's the Princess Salome walking down the stairs. These are the steps of the palace, as Von Strahan right. says to her. Yeah. Cameras! Act! So now we hear Norma's theme as it would be so used if out. it was the score to Salome. Life, <laughs> if it was the score to a biblical epic, you know, of the sort that we talked about in the Ben-Hur episode. The dream she had clung to so desperately had enfolded her. really get the sense that, well, this is its natural habitat. This is where this theme really belongs. This is what it's there to do. And I kind of feel like it's this magic trick that you've been hearing this melody throughout the whole movie, and it's been associated with her this whole time. And then sort of the punchline at the end is, yeah, that thing you were hearing the whole time. Turns out it is the theme for this biblical epic movie that's playing in her head. It fits in that role so well. And I wonder if he worked backwards from that ending to get this material to use throughout the rest of the movie. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly the standout moment from this score. Yeah. Clearly an iconic moment in sound and image. And line, again. I'm ready for my close-up. Is the line on the list of lines? Yes, it is. Yeah, that moment is spectacular. Like, I literally get goosebumps watching that every time. That moment really is spectacular. And it's more than just how the score to a DeMille epic of Salome would sound, because it's made grotesque. These big chords. He's playing in the background. They're kind of sick chords. I mean, she's gone mad. Sure. It's so wonderfully the opulence of uh, Hollywood glamour and ridiculous biblical epics and simultaneously pure grotesque madness at exactly the same time. And like you say, the apotheosis of her theme that we've heard the whole time. All of these things kind of land at once there. So I said we had to talk about Richard Strauss's Salome which is a point of reference here. Billy Wilder said that they rehearsed to it, or they wrote with it in mind that for this sequence, when she's in the movie in her imagination, we would hear the Dance of the Seven Veils from the opera Salome, which is surely her source in writing her terrible screenplay, is this famous opera of Salome that uh, Richard Strauss wrote based on the play version by Oscar Wilde, which is famously over-the-top, decadent, morbid... So this is what they imagined. And Voxman said, no, I can do something way better because it'll use the material from this score. Yeah. But anyway, there's a direct reference to Strauss's Salome in that trill that corresponds to her madness that you hear right before she comes down the stairs. And you hear a couple times earlier in the movie, like when she's watching herself on screen and she gets worked up and she's like, I will return, damn it. And you hear this. Sure. And she stands up into the light beam of the movie projector. Just such a great image. I'll show them. I'll be up there again, so help me. And so you hear this long, sustained trill that sounds like 
something is buzzing, something is wrong. And that comes direct from Strauss. Hmm. Well, I noticed that in that scene we were talking about earlier when she's sitting in DeMille's chair on the movie set, a microphone on the end of a boom gets sort of passed above her head, and we hear that trill there. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely feels like it's a bug, like she's swatting away this microphone like it's an insect flying into her ear, you know, because she has this imagined enmity with microphones, with talking pictures that have moved on past her. Yeah, there's a danger in it. Yeah, exactly. This conflict that she has between reality and her dreams. And you also hear this great little kind of muted fanfare in a couple of these instances. Yeah, it's when von Stroheim, pretending to be the director, he calls for lights when she's about to walk down the stairs. And then you hear that. Are you ready, Norma? It's on the one hand, the world of the biblical epic where there would be a bunch of trumpeters standing at the door before the grand princess makes her grand entrance. And it also sounds like studio pomp, you know, Paramount Studios presents kind of fanfaric thing. Well, exactly. Actually, in that moment at the end there, when the cameras are rolling, what cameras are they really? It's the newsreel cameras. It made me think of like uh, newsreel fanfare. Yeah, which again is that same kind of studio pomp sound, like what you would hear if you went to see a newsreel in a movie theater. Hey, speaking of what you would hear if you went to see a newsreel in a movie theater, do you know where I'm going with this? No. Okay. This is the thing that has to be talked about on this episode. Great. So there's Joe's theme and there's Norma's theme. And then there's one other theme which corresponds to Betty, a wholesome, young, bright, aspiring writer who's working at Paramount as a reader, but she's got big ideas and she's ambitious and she wants to put something good together with Joe. The love theme between them or the kind of theme of her wide-eyed, positive, innocent outlook is... that you hear when they're having a romantic scene together. I thought of that as sort of the score for the screenplay that they're writing together. I mean, don't you hear a statement of it when Norma gets her hands on the screenplay? That's where she sees Betty Schaefer's name and looks her up to call her and harass her. But when she picks up the screenplay and puts it in the light, I feel like we hear it then too. Yeah, well, the screenplay at that point is called Untitled Love Story. And it's kind of like she's jealous because she realizes that he's made this real emotional connection to someone who's more appropriate for him. Right. But we first hear this, maybe it's kind of hinted at earlier, and then it comes to the fore during the very sweet scene where they're walking through all of the... The backlots of Paramount. And she talks about how she got where she is and her dreams, and he kisses her on the nose, and you hear this sweet music. Then the studio made a test. Well, they didn't like my nose. Slanted this way a little. So I went to a doctor and had it fixed. They made more tests, and they were crazy about my nose. Only they didn't like my acting. Nice job. It should be. It cost me $300. That's the saddest thing I ever heard. Well, not at all. It taught me a little sense. I got a job in the mailroom, worked up to the stenographic. Now I'm a reader. So that tune is a joke, kind of, because it is the last phrase of a song called Paramount on Parade that was used as the Paramount newsreel intro-outro in the 30s and 40s. 
1930, there was a review movie with all of your favorite Paramount stars of 1930 doing just a bunch of skits and dances called Paramount on Parade. And it was basically, you know, a diversion for the evening, but it also functioned as Paramount self-advertising because, you know, look who we've got in our stable of stars. Look at all the talent. And the opening was a song composed for the movie of the same title, Paramount on Parade. And I tried to find this, and it doesn't exist. It certainly doesn't exist in the public. I'm not sure whether it exists in an archive somewhere. The only audio I can get of this is that movie house organ players, they still play this song. I guess when a Paramount movie would come, you were supposed to play Paramount on Parade before it came. So we can hear the tune of it here being played on a movie house organ. And it is a rousing march. And the last phrase is... The lyrics to which apparently were... And a crowd who'll be proud if new friends they have made when you've seen Paramount on Parade. That bit, the last, like, three bars of this were used as the intro and outro to every Paramount newsreel, which every moviegoer would have seen for 20 years. And this we can hear. So he brings this into the movie subtly in the background with the rhythm kind of changed so it doesn't sound like a snappy march anymore. Of course I love him. I always will. I, I'm not in love with him anymore, that's all. What happened? You did? It's at this wonderful level where even if you are intimately familiar with that, which of course is a complete obscurity to us now in our 2017 armchairs, but even if you were intimately familiar (laughs) with it... Which can I trade it in, please, already? (laughs) Yeah, get your 2018 armchairs. Yeah, I wouldn't have characterized this year as an armchair, but go on. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, dump it, burn it. Anyway, even if you knew that theme like the back of your newsreel, you would not necessarily pick up on it. And then at the end of the movie, as you say... They roll in the truck. You even see that it says Paramount News, the eyes and ears of the world or whatever it is. And then the end titles of the movie after Norma walks into oblivion and the camera fades out on her face. Then you see end titles. And finally, this theme gets brought to the fore. everyone to notice uh-huh all right so this is my long long explanation of what that is because it's an insidery winking hollywood joke that yes has completely aged out of relevance but when you think through what it is it again is just such a wonderful choice because it's like betty schaefer represents the hope that is what the studio wants to put across in its self-image or its pr image the feelings in a song like paramount on parade those are her sincere emotions that is her real love theme and it's played real seriously it's very touching music in the movie but then you recognize that it's kind of been drawn from this sort of ridiculous uh you know tinsel glitzy absurdity of hollywood but yeah voxman is making an actual you know musical pun or to reference joke with that tune 
Okay. Well, I'm glad to know that. And, you know, I guess using that newsreel fanfare at the very end there, it also sort of makes it like the whole preceding movie we just watched was the newsreel. Yeah, right. Exactly. That too. So now that we've talked about the music over the very last frame that we see in the picture, which is the cast list, maybe we can finally get to an ending here ourselves. Let's see if we can figure out where to place this relative to the other scores that we've talked about. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Um, you, why don't you go first this time? Ooh. You want me to go first? If you know your answer, go first, because I'm still not sure what I'm going to say. We'll, we'll find out. All right, fine. I, I think I know my answer. Uh, as I've said, I, I really, really like this movie, and I like this score. It's complex, and it is really competently and interestingly done, and there's a lot to it. I think it'll be easy to guess that it's not going to go on the top of my list. It's not my favorite. It didn't rivet me to the movie and to the emotional journey of the movie the way that the scores that are on the top of my list did to Kill a Mockingbird, A Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront. How can you say that, John? Didn't you think this was a good movie? Did you not think this was a good score? (laughs) Well... All right, I guess... Just kidding. I guess now that you asked me, I think this was a really good movie and a good score. Oh, okay. That comforts me. I feel a little better. Good. I hope everybody does. So, going into this recording, I was pretty confident that where I was going to put this was below Ben-Hur on my list. Hmm. So, that would be between Ben-Hur and On Golden Pond on my list. But you know what, Andy? After talking through it with you after hearing your take on why these things that didn't land for me for some reason, why they landed for you, why they contributed to what we both agree is a really good movie, I feel like I have been convinced to move it up a notch, move it up a slot. So I'm going to now put it above Ben-Hur and below Planet of the Apes on my list. Mm-hmm. These are scores I like, you know? The, uh, I, I liked that we, we talked a lot about how Ben-Hur is a good score and has important things about it to recommend it. And Planet of the Apes, you know, okay, I don't need to rehash why... You don't, why you don't need to be defensive about the absurdity of the list. I will continue to repeat. It's a losing game. These things shouldn't be on a list. Don't worry <laughs> that it doesn't make any sense. All right, well, that's where it's going then. It's going between Planet of the Apes and Ben-Hur on my list. Um, for me, I think this is a unique case... You know, in one sense, this score is the platonic ideal of the classical Hollywood technique. Mm-hmm. In another sense, this is a, uh aberration because it is, like you said, a sort of scandalously self-devouring. Ooh, scabrous would have been a great word earlier if I'd thought of that word. Would it have? I don't know. It's a little much, isn't it? It was, it was, how, yeah. How about stochastic? I've learned that word. I know what it means now. It's the guy who conducts in Fantasia. Um, That's right. You know, something I wanted to say earlier is that uh, in the last one in To Kill a Mockingbird, we talked about the point of view that it establishes, this very particular emotional point of view. This comes from the era when they didn't pick a point of view. Like, all movies had the same point of view, which was that they were dramatic and intense and classy. Yeah. And that you were getting a high-quality product comparable to European operatic production when you went to a movie. That was it. That was the point of view. And that if things were happening on screen, they were big and they were dramatic. And this movie, in a sense, falls into that category. It just, by default, is intense about what's going on. Well, but then when you step back, it's not by default at all. It's a very... Yeah, what were you going to say in response to that? Well, I mean, maybe here at the end you've articulated another way of why I, I didn't super love it, which is that, yeah, it's not picking a perspective and it's not 
marrying with the emotional story of the movie the way that, for example, To Kill a Mockingbird does or the way that A Streetcar Named Desire does. It's just sort of playing, this is a movie, you know, not this is a story about this specific emotion or this character's journey. It's just sort of playing, this sure is a movie we're watching. And yeah, it's a very highly accomplished movie. But I feel like as Hollywood is maturing and learning to tell different kinds of stories and to diversify the dramatic toolkit that it has, it sort of learns to, yeah, take these different points of view. You know, Alex North scored A Streetcar Named Desire just a year after this movie, but, you know, he was coming to storytelling from the sort of method acting perspective, which is a kind of reformation of a sort, away from the you know, from the sort of more ornate Catholic style of, yeah, these big, we're putting on a real big show here, and it's made with pomp and ceremony and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I said European a hundred times. Like, right. It's completely fair, I think, to say Alex North represents the American style, and that that is a pretty stark divide that you can see right there. Right. So I think that's why the score didn't get to the top of my list for me, because... Yeah, it seems like it's part of a tradition that needs uh, some reformation. The playing of we're making a, an expensive, high-quality motion picture experience sort of wasn't enough for me here after having thought deeply about the deeper, more sensitive moves that were made by the other scores on the top of the list that we've talked about. I completely hear that. But I think that this movie is sui generis. Is that how you pronounce it? Sui? I think we've had enough pronunciation conversation in this episode. This movie is really unique and stands apart. Oh, now you're going to modify unique? This movie is unique and stands apart from the earlier tradition or the later tradition to me in its attitude. Can I bring an example in? We've obviously interrupted the pure ranking. (laughs) It deserves to be interrupted. Like at the very beginning, here's this guy, Joe Gillis. He's like, I am a writer. I don't make enough money. And here come some guys to repossess my car. Uh, but luckily, I parked it across the street because I saw this coming. And now I need to get money to pay for my car. Dramatically, there's nothing there. Who cares? And yet the music is reflexively playing. Like, this is dramatic and this matters. So I kept it across the street in a parking lot behind Rudy's shoeshine park. Rudy never ask any questions about your finances. He just look at your heels and know the score. The stakes are nothing, but the music is playing this kind of, oh no, stakes are high, and you know, this is what you go to the cinema to see, a story where something really matters. It's kind of like a noir, you know, like where there's down on luck detective, uh-huh. but he's a Hollywood writer, and there's something, the movie understands that this is a mismatch of material and tone. I believe that when this movie was made, to attach this kind of dramatic tone to this kind of material was a real clear choice. And my experience of the movie is that it is knowing about its use of all of these old gestures, all of this point of view that isn't a point of view, this point of view that this is, you know, it just matters and it's intense and it's big. The movie is a critique of obsession with that outlook. And yet it is doing it. It feels like the style and Franz Voxman and Hollywood as a whole have have arrived at a very self-aware, knowing place. Mm -hmm. So the usage of that old style doesn't feel to me insufficient. It just feels like a very special case kind of usage of it. So I hear what you're saying. My ranking thoughts were, on the one hand, I just want to say, like I did with Ben-Hur, like, 
this craft and this tradition is great and it's important and I'll put it however high you want. And on the other hand, I want to say this movie is a really cool one-of-a-kind movie and its score works in kind of a one-of-a-kind way for me. And I don't know how to relate either of those to ranking stuff. So I kind of feel like I felt with Ben-Hur where it's like, uh, I'll just go with AFI if they want to say that this is the best one so far. Sure, fine. No. Really? Yeah, I mean... You don't like this score better than you like To Kill a Mockingbird. You don't like it better than A Streetcar Named Desire. Don't... You know, it's a list of your favorite things. Don't just let them get... I like this movie. I mean, I think this is my favorite of the movies so far. (laughs) And I'm telling you, I get chills at the ending. Sure, it's great. But you teared up at To Kill a Mockingbird. I did tear up during To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, we were talking about the precision. I mean, it's like the Swiss watch kind of... Everything is put in place very carefully. Did we even get a chance to play the beauty treatment montage where you hear the you know, like gypsy violin concerto? No, kind of thing? that's a super cool spot, though. There's a lot of ways you could have gotten this crazed energy across, but he gets it across in this, you know... You feel the grand tradition that has birthed this. It's not like he's just making it up. This is a mature product of a mature tradition. Of course. Yeah, something like Streetcar or To Kill a Mockingbird, in a sense, the brush is wider. You didn't like the Mickey Mousing, but for me, all of these little glints, you know, it's like he dabs the canvas there with like one dot of bright white and it makes it sparkle. For me, that's how it worked. Um... You really want me to put it below Mockingbird, huh? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> but I guess don't do what I tell you to do. Like, you were annoyed when I put Ben-Hur above... Uh, I, 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 was, I was surprised. surprised. You were surprised. I wasn't annoyed. This time I'm annoyed. You're a little annoyed. Because you actually took issue with this one, but I really didn't. I found it very rewarding. Okay. All right. Well, then, then I guess you do you. I mean, yeah, maybe it's just like there's a conservative part of me, but I feel like... Those two American movies, Streetcar and Mockingbird, are invigorating and moving and thrilling. And this is like luxury. It feels like this gift when someone, I wrote a symphony for you, and it's like being in a fancy hotel, those old scores. Yeah, I'll give you that. This definitely feels like a fancy hotel. Yeah, I'm just letting that, I'm just going to put it at the top. I'm putting it at the top. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. (laughs) Fine. You're going to have to live. I am. I am. I think I can do it. Maybe we'll have a special. When we get to the end of the list, we can say, now, let's look at how our lists are clearly in the wrong order, and we'll reorder them again. Okay. No, I think that's disappointing. I think listeners appreciate... Actually, no listener is keeping track of the list. They're just listening to us talk. When we're done talking, it's over. They don't remember what order these things are in. <laughs> that's what I believe. Except for maybe that guy who loves How the West Was Won. He might be making a chart on He's his be... serial killer wall, you know, with the with the, <laughs> oh, the pushpins <laughs> and the string connecting our faces. I was about to say, he's very excited to have been the star of this episode. <laughs> All so. right, I'll take that out. I'll take that so out. Much. I got to say, the, the movie about the serial killer <laughs> who is stalking us would get a great score. Yeah, it would be one of these newfangled, you know, just like boom, 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 boom. Franz Waxman would be like, there's a thousand things you could be doing. (laughs) All right. Yeah, we talked about it enough. All right. What's next, John? Next time, we're going to have to talk about John Barry's score for Out of Africa. 
I like how you put that. I can already <laughs> sense how you feel about this one. I've never seen this movie. I'm going to openly admit on mic that I've never seen Out of Africa. Me too. And I don't really think I've heard the score. I must have, but I haven't thought about it. So yeah, let's see. Yeah. I enjoy seeing new ones. I enjoy when the whole experience is kind of uh, jumping into the water and not knowing what temperature it's going to be. Great. All right. Well, we had probably our widest gulf in opinion on this movie that we've had so far. So there's a lot of room in between us there for you to have opinions, too. So why not uh, tweet them to us at uh, at Score Settlers? Uh, if you've enjoyed it, uh, leave us a review on iTunes and make sure you're subscribed as we keep going. Great. Please do. John, <laughs> let's listen to some more movie music. Listen, that doesn't have to be the sign-off. We don't have to, like, religiously, uh, whether it be Catholic or, or Reformation, uh, mm-hmm. we don't have to religiously subscribe to that. We can say other things. See you next time. All right. See you next time when we'll listen to some more film music, and won't that be fun because we like listening to film music. This is the end of the show. It will be fun. We're going to do that. Yeah, I agree with you that this is the end of the show.